Good morning, everybody. It's Lisa Salberg and Dr. Martin Marin with you today for Tales from the Heart, a podcast from the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association. Today, our topic is going to be the newly diagnosed and those with increasing symptoms that were stable previously, how to manage through this part of the process and how to adjust the sales and get ready for life with HCM. Today is August 13th, Friday the 13th, 2021, and um, we are live at about 11.05 Eastern time. So if you're joining us live, we will have Q&A at the end of the session. So you can post your questions in the Facebook chat box or whatever you call it. Good morning, Dr. Marin. Hi, Lisa. Good to be with you today. I like that new introduction. You know, we always have to keep it fresh here on Tales from the Heart, right? Yeah, you really are. You're up in your game. Where'd you get that music from? Thank you for asking. That music was custom made for the HCMA by a gentleman in Northern California who is a composer and has HCM. Um, and his name is Eddie Friedman. And if you've ever been to an aquarium, you've probably heard his work and you didn't even know it. So thank you. Shout, to out, shout out to Eddie. That's nice. Absolutely. So yeah, we've had that for a little while. I just haven't had the knowledge on how to use my soundboard until today I was playing with it. So um, the newly diagnosed, probably the scariest moments in an HCM patient's journey. So you go to a doctor at some point um, because maybe you're having symptoms or maybe a murmur was detected and you hear the words for the first time, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And you probably can't pronounce it well if you're like most people. Um, so, Marty, what happens first? What, what would you say to somebody if they were just just diagnosed? What the, what should they do? Well, um, the the first thing we do is 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 balance that new diagnosis, which of course is always you know scary no matter what disease you're talking about to hear that you have something abnormal disease that you didn't ever anticipate, of course, getting is always tough to hear no matter what. But, you know, what we, you know, what we do is try to balance that news, you know, pretty quickly with, um, you know, providing patients a, a, an overview, so to speak, of, um, you know, the fact that although they're diagnosed, that this is a treatable disease, you know, in 2021, um, that the vast majority of patients, not all, but the vast majority of patients with this diagnosis and with this disease can still live uh, a normal life with good quality of life. And so we, we try to immediately put things into perspective because of course, <clears throat> um, there are a lot of diseases where that's not the case. And so, um, you know, we frame it that way first, and then we begin with talking about you know, what needs to be potentially considered in terms of treatment for that individual patient. So we've been diagnosed, we hear the words hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, um, and then we have to look at testing. Like, right. how do we know what kind of HCM we have? Which, which anatomy is ours and what are our risks? So if they were gonna start at the community level, what would they do? Well, so so this is how you know I think it, it, it's good to think of it um, in, in the following way. So when you're you're newly diagnosed, 
you know, the, the, the first thing that we do is that we put patients first in the hopefully correct subgroup of HCM. Okay, so we, that means, is the patient obstructive or non-obstructive? Okay? And you've got to do that reliably and well first because certain treatments are available to one set of patients with, with this subgroup and not the others. So in other words, if you've got obstruction or obstructive HCM, you may be, you may be a candidate for certain treatments that are not available or that we don't use for non-obstructive patients. And of course, also what to expect out of your, your life in a way, your natural history in terms of the future um, is different whether you have obstruction versus non-obstructive. So it impacts enormously the conversation and the expectations and of course treatment depending on which of the two groups of HCM the patient is in. So that's the first step that we do. And we do that, you know, and we do that using testing. Uh, the echocardiogram, the ultrasound, um, and usually that is an exercise echocardiogram. If a patient comes to us without evidence of the obstruction at rest, we will exercise them. Sometimes you may have other, other methods used to try to see if you've got obstruction with what we call provocation. Um, and some of those can be done during the echocardiogram examination, having you bear down. Sometimes drugs can be given. There are a number of different ways that we can determine if a patient has what we call provocable obstruction. So not obstruction at rest, but that they develop it um, you know, with, with provocation. We like to use exercise to do that. Um, the bottom line is that we use the echocardiogram as our primary tool test to put a patient in the correct group, obstructive versus non-obstructive. I'm going to pause on that one yeah. for a second, because yeah. if you're at a local hospital or local doctor's office and they did an echo and they found HCM, yeah. typically speaking at the community base, have they collected enough images and enough measurements to really understand the full impact of HCM on that heart? Or are there specific protocols that certain centers of excellences might use that are a little bit more detailed? Yeah, I mean, I think that the answer to that is in general, um, the majority of community-based cardiology practices or hospitals um, are generally not, um, you know, uh, putting together the protocols, the, 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 the testing infrastructure um, that exists at uh, more centers of excellence, um, HCM centers of excellence. Um, and so it may be very true, and, and it often is, as you said, that um, if a patient's diagnosed in, in, a, in a more community-based setting, um, certain types of aspects to the imaging may not be done or may not be done as reliably as it could be done at an HCM center of excellence, okay? And that is of course, you know, one of what is now many reasons why, you know, it may make a lot of sense um, to obtain an evaluation, at least one initially at an HCM center of excellence so that those types of protocols and testing and information um, is not only acquired the right way, but is interpreted 
And that's the other key thing, interpreted the right way. So after the echo and the stress echo, and we've determined obstructed versus non-obstructed, are we looking then at rhythm risks? Are we evaluating for cardiac arrest yet? What happens next? So there's two big buckets, and this is kind of how I, I, I sort of frame it for patients who have a diagnosis of HCM. Let's talk about the two sort of things that can happen to a patient with HCM over their lifetime. They can develop symptoms and they could be potentially at risk for abnormal rhythms, electrical issues. So you have symptoms and electrical issues. They're different kind of buckets. Um, they both are due to HCM, but they're look, I like to look at them and I like to separate them in terms of the discussion as separate issues. So for example, you know, when we've put the patient in the correct category of obstructive versus non-obstructive, then the next question that we ask is, do, do you have symptoms? Are you limited? Do you have symptoms that we could attribute to your HCM? And then depending on the answer to that question, and again, also depending on whether they're obstructive versus non-obstructive, then we will get into a discussion about potential treatment options that could be available for that patient to make their quality of life better in terms of reducing symptom burden. I'm gonna pause you there again. Mm -hmm. So having had HCM, and it's really odd to talk about that in the past tense, four and a half years after a transplant, but there is something that is a problem. And that is we as the patient may be completely unaware that what we're feeling is abnormal because we've lived with this heart for so long. And therefore I caution patients to say, I'm fine without a little bit of reflection and questioning of your family members and friends. Are you keeping up with people? Do you sleep more than others? Do you feel worse after a meal? So avoid going out with friends because you might go out for a walk after dinner or something. There are little telltale signs that we're limited, but it's not this overt, you can't get out of bed, you can't move. They're minor little things that kind of build over time. So while a physician is asking you at any point in your HCM journey, what are your symptoms? Please don't feel like you're complaining if you're explaining nuanced things that some days I feel like this and some days I feel like that and I notice this trigger or that trigger. So Marty, have you experienced this where a family member jumps in and says, uh, not so fast? Yeah, no, we, we have. And I think you bring up a really good point that, you know, in addition to how the importance of the imaging that we just talked about, equally as important is the history taking. We put a lot of emphasis on talking to patients um, you know, if you've ever revisited us, for example, and I think this is consistent with a lot of the HCM expert centers of excellence, it's not just, you know, unique to one or, the, or another, but I think all of us do this. We spend a lot of time talking to patients and putting a lot of weight on trying to ask the right questions to patients and family members that are there to really try to uncover, you know, whether or not, you know, there are symptoms that the patient may not appreciate as well but that are there, that are due to HCM that can be improved uh, with treatment. 
So history taking is really important. And again, that makes another, again, another case, I think, for evaluation at HCM centers of excellence, because the cardiologists in those centers of excellence, you know, is, 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 is much more uh, focused and attuned to the type of questions that may trigger or bring out the answer to the question of whether or not symptoms are, are present in a patient that are due to HCM. And so that's another aspect to the um, advantage of, of also being evaluated at a center of excellence. So let's go back to your buckets. The first one yeah. is the symptoms. What's the second bucket? So the, uh, the second bucket is rhythm issues, you know, and risk of rhythm issues. And, and um, the, the next thing I usually say is that can be upper, cha upper chamber abnormal rhythms, and it can also be bottom chamber abnormal electrical rhythms. Um, and then we have a discussion about both of those issues. And the bottom chamber abnormal electrical issues are uh, rhythms that can start out of the blue and can be life-threatening if they occur. And um, that's called ventricular tachycardia or VT. And so we have a discussion with patients about um, you know, their potential risk of that rhythm happening in the future to them. And we look at a number of different tests and part of their clinical history to help formulate an idea about whether that patient is at an increased risk in the future of a concerning bottom chamber rhythm. And we've got very good markers, what we call risk factors, to help us determine that for any individual patient. And of course, if we believe in our judgment based on those risk factors that a patient is at a significantly increased risk in that situation, given that that rhythm can be life-threatening, that could be a scenario where we would then discuss treatment, which would be device therapy, what we call implantable cardioverter defibrillator, ICD. And what if they had rhythm problems at the top part of the heart in the atria? Yep. yep. So top chamber, um, the most clinically important one of those would be what's called atrial fibrillation, AF, or its cousin atrial flutter. And those are, you know, rhythms of the upper chamber, as you were just saying, that are irregular. As, as, patient, as, the, as anybody living, as we all get older, we're at risk for that to happen, but you're at greater risk, greater risk for AF because you have HCM. And so we always try to determine whether a patient may have ex be experiencing atrial fibrillation. Um, and, and sometimes we do testing to help clarify that. And that would be a monitor that can be worn to help try to capture uh, that rhythm if a patient has a history that could be consistent with it. Or if they have had atrial fibrillation and it's been documented, then we talk about treatments that can be provided to either stop that from happening or to protect them against a consequence of atrial fibrillation, which is stroke, and that would be blood thinners. So that's what we talk about when we talk about upper chamber. So first you get diagnosed with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Then other big words are thrown out at you, like do you have obstruction or do you have atrial fibrillation or do you have ventricular tachycardia? So this is a lot to process for a patient. Typically, 
if you were seeing a brand new patient who was referred from the community or came through the HCMA and knocked on your door and said, I got diagnosed last month, now what? How long is the process from testing to evaluating those test results to starting to create a treatment plan? Yeah, I, mean, I think everybody, yeah, people may do it a little different. I could just tell you that, you know, what we have found, you know, that works well is it, it's really, to be honest, almost a, for initial pay, for new patients, it's almost a sort of a two-day process um, to do it right, at least, where on the first day, testing is done. That includes the imaging. We can talk more if you want about what other imaging that may include, but it's usually imaging on the first day, maybe some other testing, depending on the patient's prior history. And then the second day is the, is the, is the, is the consultation where we meet with patients and, uh, and their families to obviously go over all of the testing, our, our, our impressions, and of course, what may or may not need to be done, which itself takes that conversation to provide patients not only the recommendations for treatment, but to provide the education. And that's the key thing here, is to provide the background education uh, about HCM um, to allow them patients to best understand the treatment recommendations. Without understanding the HCM part of it, the anatomy, the natural history, you really can't fully comprehend why the treatments may be effective or are being recommended. And so that whole process, education, interpretation, recommendations, you know, could be anywhere from you know, 45 minutes to two hours or more, depending on the circumstances. So let's go back for a second and talk about other imaging. I'm assuming you're talking CMR. So why don't you tell us what that is? Yeah, so CMR stands for cardiovascular magnetic resonance imaging. It's MRI, MRI. And um, you know, the, 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 this is an MRI machine. It's the same machine that you'd have for an MRI of your knee or, or your head. Um, but it's done um, in this case, of course, to image your heart. And there are certain, in, in MRI, echocardiograms, uh, ultrasounds have been around and used since the 1970s, really. Um, obviously, that technique has evolved and gotten better too, but MRIs are, are newer in that sense. In, 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 in terms of years, you're talking about you know, 15, 10 years where they've been really part of the routine uh, evaluation for patients. And the reason we use MRI and echo, but the reason we use MRI is that MRI can provide information in some instances that you can't get as well or at all with the echocardiogram. They're complementary imaging techniques. They, you, we use them both to provide more information than if we had just used one. Okay. And the MRI, just to be clear on that, one other point is that the MRI provides kind of, in some ways, you know, more, what was it, increased spatial resolution, sharper images. And so sometimes we can make more reliable measurements of the wall thickness and other anatomy using the MRI. And then the MRI can also provide other information too. For example, the presence and the amount of scar tissue in the heart muscle, which can be important. In, in, in impacting management. So that's 
That's why we use MRI and combine it often in the initial evaluation with the echo, because we're getting, we're getting additional information with both tests. The way I like to explain to people the imaging, if you go yep. to the community-based cardiologist, their equipment tends to be a little bit older. Sometimes it's modern, but sometimes it's a little bit older. So the echo is like an older television with older technology. So That's think right. about grainy old TVs. If you come to a center of excellence, the TV is a little bit newer and it's a little bit sharper, but an MRI is like HD TV on steroids because you're getting that really clear, crisp picture and you can see the walls. So simplistic right. analogies. Right. That's right. And that's why we call it, we call it, we call it complementary imaging. Mm -hmm. Use the strengths of both echo and MRI to provide each patient the best information for them about their heart that could help impact treatment. So the patient has gone through this process. I will, I will put a little pitch in here. Once a month, the HCMA runs a discussion group for the newly diagnosed or new to the HCMA to kind of make sure they know the terminology and they're ready to have a discussion with you when they show up and understand a little bit more about what they're talking, what you're gonna be talking to them about so that they can start to make good informed decisions. And this is where um, I'm gonna to pivot to the guidelines document that was published late last year, where the conversation of shared decision-making comes into play. So as somebody's newly diagnosed and they're coming through this process of becoming educated about HCM and understanding exactly what their anatomy is and what it means to their family, we have the opportunity to provide a little bit of clarity and education before they get there so that they can have a good conversation to make a shared decision. You're providing them with an insight, but they have to stop and think about what do they want for their lives? And is a defibrillator something that they're comfortable with or they could become comfortable with over time? And getting them to start thinking about what is important to them in this entire process. This is not a dictatorship. Doctors don't tell you what to do when you must follow. You need to make a decision along with your team and it's a team effort. If you want something out of it, you gotta put something into it. So we try to prepare them a little bit and I think you can tell the ones we've talked to before <laughs> they get to you. Um, okay, so they're diagnosed. You've given them some information. Maybe you've recommended a drug. Maybe you've recommended a device. Maybe you've said, Let's revisit this in six months because we're still figuring out what your symptoms really are. What do you tell them right away about lifestyle and changes and other occupational issues that come up? Are there recreational issues that come up? What is your general guidance? Obviously, there's going to be very specific guidance based on each case, but what do you generally tell somebody in that first visit? Well, we, I think we emphasize first that, you know, that, that a diagnosis of HCM doesn't completely uproot, change dramatically the opportunities for them to live a full, complete life at all. So what we are really talking about in terms of lifestyle modifications are modifications. That's what it is. It's modifications. It's being thoughtful about certain aspects or areas um, because they have HCM that they may not have had to think about without HCM. Um, but I think, you know, and we can talk about what those, you know, are, but, but it's not a, 
it's not a it's not a um, it's not changing things so dramatically in, in a way that um, will not allow the vast majority of patients to continue to have the opportunity to engage and enjoy life the way that they have been and want to continue to. I often get people to come through our system before they get into a center of excellence program. And there are people who have some symptoms and things that haven't been quite investigated yet. And I will use the term that I want to put you in China doll mood just for a little while, sit on the shelf and look pretty for a little while until you talk to the doctor and find out what your risks are. And it may be a slight pause in normal activity if you're a marathon runner or if you're intensely involved in things that are risky, um, you know, things that would maybe get you hurt if you lost consciousness. So sometimes we say, just pause for a minute, wait till you gather the data and then make an informed decision. And typically patients can be seen inside of four to six weeks by a center of excellence and a lot of times much sooner than that. So is that a reasonable thing for me to be saying all these years or am I being too paranoid? I think that's, no, no, I think that's really reasonable. Absolutely. I think it's well said. Okay. So China doll mode continues to exist and hopefully you don't have to stay there very long. Okay. So they're making small changes, then they get the data and then they may have to make changes occupationally or recreationally, depending upon the outcome of the, the evaluation. Um, but they don't have to jump the gun and think, I can't do anything. I, you know, there's no joy left in the world. There's joy. There's a lot of joy. I've had a heart transplant. I've been through it all, guys, or almost all of it. And even if this is your destination, it's not a bad destination because I'm still here. Only four to five percent of us will ever get here. I'm the rare bird. Don't want to be like me. Okay. So let's say now we're going to pivot. You've been diagnosed for eight years, 10 years. Things were pretty quiet. You knew you had HCM, you had an occasional symptom, a bad day here and there, but now the bad days are mounting and something has changed. And maybe you got complacent and you haven't been to a center of excellence in five years or eight years because your local guy's following you. Is this the time to revisit your center of excellence options and go to a high volume person to figure out why things changed and why yeah, might they change? Right. No, absolutely. I mean, there's no question that if there's been a change in how you're feeling and, you know, that may also include having checked in with your local cardiologist and maybe there's been changes to your treatment regimen, but if those symptoms continue um, and, and you're not where you want to be and you're not what you used to be uh, in terms of how you feel, yes, you absolutely should consider uh, checking back in with your NHCM Center of Excellence to get an additional perspective and, and potential opinion about what may be going on. Now, what could be going on? There's a couple different possibilities, of course, but but the most common reason that we see patients who were doing well for a long time start to not do as well, right, is the issue of obstruction right? Outflow tract obstruction. The high pressures in the heart because the valve comes over, gets in the way of blood flow going out of the heart. That's the obstruction, the mechanism of obstruction. 
And that high pressure can over time eventually cause a patient who was doing really well, now isn't. So start to develop symptoms, the most common of which is, of course, exertional shortness of breath or fatigue. And so obstruction would be number one, two, and three as a cause of a change in terms of priority. And so that would then, if was the case, would then you know, you know, cause a patient to enter into a conversation about additional treatment options that could help reverse that symptom. So what would go, what happens inside of the heart to go from mildly obstructed to more severely obstructed? Is it, what is well, it? Yeah, so I think this is the way we think about it. And this is at least kind of how I explain that to patients. Is that, you know, I don't believe that it's that the pressures in the heart have over those years steadily increased necessarily in that patient to then be now so high that they're starting to have symptoms for that reason. I think what it is, is that the pressures are usually what they are for a patient. They can tolerate those pressures. Your heart tolerates them. Patients tolerate them, meaning that those high, those increased pressures do not cause symptoms for a long time. And then at some point, and that point can vary dramatically for any individual patient. Sometimes it can be when they're young, it could be middle-aged, it could be old age, but something changes for that individual patient where they are not able anymore to tolerate the increased pressures as well as they were for many years or maybe for their whole life prior. And now it's causing them to be symptomatic, okay? So the, the mechanisms in the heart and the lungs that were compensating in a way to, not, to allow that patient not to be symptomatic or you know, to feel good are not doing that job anymore. And so that then becomes the turning point at which it's time to start to think or discuss additional treatment options. So the obstructed might head towards surgery or alcohol septal ablation to reduce that gradient. And the non-obstructed might go through medication changes and possible advanced heart failure evaluation. Would that That's be right. That's right. And so just to make that point, just to be absolutely clear about that. So, and this kind of comes back to what, what we were saying in the beginning is that surgical myectomy, alcohol septal ablation are procedures that are not done in non-obstructive patients, even if that non-obstructive patient is symptomatic, they don't have any benefit, okay? And likewise, norpace or disopyramide, a drug that lowers the pressures from obstruction and so it's used to treat as a drug symptomatic obstruction, not non-obstructive patients. So that's why it's so important, coming back to that original point, that's why it's so important to know whether you have obstruction or not, because those treatments impact, the decision about the, the opportunity for those treatments is different depending on what you have. So that's, that's the importance. Okay. Now, um, a question that I have gotten twice in the past two weeks, and I haven't for a really long time, is I would rather, and, and I 
I have my own opinion. I'd like to hear yours. Um, I have obstruction, but I don't want to go through surgery and still have this HCM heart. Can't I just get a transplant? Right. Well, that's a good, I mean, it's a good question, right? I mean, I, I, I can understand completely how, um, you know, patients could, could, could arrive at that kind of conclusion uh, or question. Here's the, here's the deal though. Um, here's the deal, uh, you know, first of all, obstruction is a problem that is very treatable with alcohol subablation or surgical myectomy. It's of course, those two procedures are invasive. Um, they come with a little bit of risk, small risk, but they are highly effective procedures. One time, almost always one-time procedures, what we call high benefit, low risk interventions to get rid of the obstruction the patient is correct. After that, you still have the HCM heart, but you have eliminated, eliminated the most important reason why that patient was symptomatic. Okay. And we know from the myectomy studies that after surgery is done, you know, that patients will live almost the rest of their life without any recurrence of symptoms. Okay. So that's why we always, always offer alcohol ablation or myectomy for symptomatic obstructive patients and not heart transplant. But heart transplant is a whole different ball game in terms of, you know, risk and also what happens after you get it in terms of living. So you, you wouldn't go down the route of heart transplant if you have obstruction. You would absolutely first do ablation or surgery. Okay. Um, I'm not going to belabor that one. If anybody thinks it's a, it's a walk in the park to have a transplant, we need right. to have a talk, but not today. Okay. So I'm going to address a couple of questions here, um, but as I'm going through them, could you just please touch for a moment on the importance of family screening in the newly diagnosed? Sure. So, you know, family screening, so important, of course, in terms of the fact that, you know, this is a genetic heart disease, you know, we talk in terms of, because of the genetics, we talk in terms of a 50% chance that a patient with HCM could pass on that mutation to each child they have. That doesn't mean that a child that gets a mutation will ever express uh, HCM. It means that there's a 50% chance that they will get the mutation for HCM. Um, and so because of that transmissibility related to the genetics, screening family members is really, really, really important. Okay? And I think we've it's talked on triple really. Yeah, well, it is because because um, you know, you, you can you know, you can obviously by making the diagnosis of HCM in a family member uh, potentially alter their 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 natural history by providing them certain recommendations or treatments even if they're not symptomatic, that would be beneficial. So that's why screening is so important, even if the family member doesn't have symptoms, okay? So we've talked in prior podcasts about different strategies that can be taken in terms of screening. 
Um, and, 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 you know, that, that I think the, that those podcasts were, were really helpful in that sense, but it's either, you know, using imaging at different time points or genetic testing. Okay. One last comment on the management that we just discussed. We all know that there are some novel agents being um, evaluated through trial and one it's at the FDA for consideration to put on market. They are myosin modulators. Um, it's a new class of medication. Um, right now, in the summer of 2021, should patients be putting off care for the promise of a drug that might hit the market at an unknown time for them and an unknown cost to them at this point in time? Or should they be treating the heart that they have today? And what do you think the promise is for tomorrow with these agents? Yeah. So I, didn't I think know I was asking that question. Yeah. Is that you or did someone write that in? That was me. That was you. That's right. Okay. Um, so, yeah, you asked a, a number of different kind of layers there. I think the, the, the class of drugs that you, you, you mentioned, myosin inhibitors, um, uh, are being. Um, promoted uh, as a new drug treatment for symptomatic obstructive HCM right now. Okay. We don't know whether they will work in non-obstructive patients. So it's we're talking about obstructive only, and we're talking about symptomatic patients with obstruction. And they've been shown in studies to have efficacy in that regard, to improve symptom burden, not in every single patient that takes them, but in a fair number, you know, by lowering the gradient, okay? And so that's good, and they seem to be overall reasonably safe, but the caveat to that, of course, is that they've been studied over very short periods of time to date, okay? And there are gonna be more information coming out as we go, of course, go along here, that will help inform issue, uh, questions in terms of longer term safety of these drugs, okay? as well as efficacy. You know, in other words, does that improvement that was seen with these drugs initially hold up over time? You know, we don't know the answer to that either. So um, those are a lot of questions in terms of safety and efficacy that will be answered as we move forward over years with this initiative. At the moment, the short-term results are promising, okay? And, and so that's a good thing because that provides patients potentially with another treatment option in this scenario. The question of, of it, when, they, when, when the first generation uh, myosin inhibitor will become available clinically, FDA approved, available for patients to use is unknown at the moment. It's the estimates in the projections are mid mid next year 2022 but that's the you know that's we don't know you know because the fda hasn't weighed in yet okay and there's a lot of different scenarios that could happen in that situation so we don't know could be it could be later for that reason i think that treatment decisions you know probably should be of course in that light discussed with your cardiologist but you know, I guess in general, I think, you know, my, my own opinion about that is probably makes the most sense for most patients to make treatment decisions based on what's available today, 
not what could be or may be available in the future, because we just have, we just don't know, okay? I think, I think that's wise advice. So the questions we have here, one is a statement. Um, somebody had a cardiologist do an echo on them and they found a gradient at 156, um, came up and saw somebody on your team, got off of lisinopril and is curious to see if that gradient drops at all. And I guess they're getting another echo soon. So just a comment about center of excellence care versus community sometimes medications aren't optimal from the community. Um, this person wants to also know how common is it to have coronary artery disease on top of HCM? Well, I mean, you know, we're, so, so we're all, all of us can be at risk to develop coronary arteries, blockages of the arteries that are supplying blood to the heart muscle. Um, you know, those are, <clears throat> coronary artery disease is the number one killer in, in the United States developed world so it's very common obviously for that reason there is no, to be clear there is no evidence that hcm increases a patient's risk to develop coronary artery disease nor is there any evidence that hcm is protective against coronary artery disease okay so your risk of developing it has nothing to do with hcm it has to do with just the what we call coronary artery disease risk factors, cholesterol, smoking, diabetes, uh, obesity, et cetera. What I will say though, with that said, is that in patients that do have, that do develop coronary artery disease and HCM, that would raise that combination of having both together, you know, that could impact treatment decisions in respect to to, to drugs um, that may be available to, to patients, different treatment options that may be, be, be should be discussed uh, based on that combination of having both. And so it's important to, to investigate that issue, coronary disease, if it, if it comes up. So um, it does impact sometimes what we do with patients. Okay, so another question I will point them to the data. So our HCMA recognized center of excellence programming can be found at our website at 4hcm.org. And there is a complete directory of all programs. Remember some programs are comprehensive and do everything from pediatric screening through heart transplantation and everything in between. Some of them have different service models. They may not have peds, they may not have surgery, they may not do transplant, but they have a comprehend or a, a primary HCM program. So you'll want to kind of take a deeper dive to see what you might need to determine which program fits you and your family the best. Mm -hmm. um, Michelle says she's experiencing a new symptom several times a month and can't identify a trigger. She gets tremors, but her heart rate is normal and she doesn't have shortness of breath. Might that need to be worked up by a primary in consultation with a cardiologist? Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't want to get you know into yeah. discussing individual patient, you know, circumstances and cases. It's tough to do, uh, obviously, in this format, and, and probably isn't the right thing to do in this format. But in general, yeah, I mean, I would say that would be a, a situation, perhaps, where working with the general internist and the and the and cardiologist together to develop the right diagnostic strategies for her. Yeah, I 
I will tell you that just because you have HCM, not every symptom is going to be tied to your HCM. We still have other things that go on. So it's important that we have a good primary doc and that we communicate with our HCM team what's going on at primary. Uh, Reinhardt has a great question because this is kind of breaking news in the past couple of months. ICDs and MRIs. Some people say you can do it and some people say you can't. I know that there's been a new document issue that says it is now safe to MRI almost every ICD, even abandoned leads. What's the Tufts philosophy here now? Yeah, I think there's, I think that, that, that you're right, that there's been, you know, an evolution there in terms of being a little bit more liberal, more maybe, maybe much more liberal in terms of imaging with MRI patients with devices. That said, you know, I think, you know, there still requires, you know, a thoughtful uh, decision about whether it's still worth doing that MRI in that patient with a device. If it is, and because there, there's critical information that needs to be gained by the MRI that can't be gained with another imaging test, then you just have to make sure that, you know, you're at a place that has the infrastructure and expertise to do the MRI with the device, you know, as, as reliably and as well as, 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 as it should be. So there's a level of expertise that comes along with that, that has to be part of the decision-making, but ultimately you're right. You know, we're, we're becoming more and more liberal with that um, because we're finding that it's safer than we ever thought. Still got to be done at, a, at the right place though. Okay, so I, for some reason, I have to keep popping out of my, uh, I'm on the, my phone to get the questions and I keep having to go back and forth to get the new stuff. So while I'm getting the new stuff, if there's any other questions out here, um, I'll get those. But I want you to talk to me about Summit 7, the International HCM Summit. What is it? When is it? And how can people sign up? Well, thanks. That's, uh, appreciate, you know, appreciate you bringing that up. Um, what it is, is that um, every three years, um, there's uh, an international HCM summit. It is a um, medical conference, scientific conference focused over three days solely on HCM. No other heart disease, just HCM pretty much. And it is a three-day meeting where most many of the national international experts in HCM um, give talks in their area of expertise of HCM uh, and really give what we consider to be the most comprehensive contemporary update on the diagnosis and management of HCM. It is going to occur this fall um, in October, it's a virtual platform meeting, okay? Because of COVID, we are and have converted the summit to a virtual meeting, which means that you can, with your computer at home, uh, after registering, attend the meeting um, by listening to the lectures live when they occur in October, we can get the dates and in, 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 in seventeenth, right? And if you register, if you can't, or you have a conflict with the live presentations of those meetings over that weekend, if you register, you will have access 
to the content, all the talks that you could access at your leisure because they will be banked um, and available to access for at least six months, maybe more after the summit. So given a code, when you register, you can go back online anytime you want uh, to listen to any of the, any or all of the talks with your flexible time. So encourage very much patients and providers of HCM to attend, register. I think you'll find it incredibly informative. Um, it's about as cutting edge in terms of information as, as we can provide. And again, it's in a format that will allow you to watch in the comfort of your home or at any point over the, the six months after the summit. So <clears throat> please give it some thought and consideration. The details of registration for the summit are available on the HCMA website. Right on the front page, just scroll to the bottom and there's a link for registration. You can go directly to hcmsummit.org for your registration. The registration is not being handled by HCMA, it's by an outside firm. So while it is on our, on our calendar, it will take you to the link to the summit so you can register through them. You will not be registering through HCMA, you will register through HCM Summit. Um, it is a fantastic platform that they're using to make it very interactive and not quite so much another Zoom meeting. So it's, it's a really great program. Um, there is a, a, a nominal fee for a weekend event um, where they have to pay for this somehow. <laughs> so um, please, uh, I, I know that we at the HCMA provide some patient education that is free of charge. This is a little different. This is, this is a big undertaking. And it takes a lot of money to put these things on. So the nominal fee is certainly worth it. And HCMA will be doing some of our own programming through the summit on Saturday evening um, of the summit. And we encourage you all to come on in. You may see some faces you recognize. We have a very interesting opportunity to have three hours of, of summit time. So there's going to be a number of talks. Uh, we're going to go over our patient-focused drug development meeting report. We're going to talk about shared decision-making. We're going to share some stories from our wonderful patients who are willing to talk to us about their HCM experiences and how we're all going to work together for the future to help more people get to diagnosis through some new programming at the HCMA that's going to help you become a fantastic legislative advocate. So that's what's coming up. And in addition, in the summit, there's going to be a number uh, of industry-sponsored uh, educational activities that will focus on a variety of different HCM top management topics, including some of the newer therapies, case-based uh, presentations, et cetera, that uh, are, I think, going to be really uh, insightful uh, for patients and caregivers as well. Fantastic. Well, I think we've answered most every question. Somebody just asked which drugs, question mark. Um, I will point you to previous podcasting that uh, Dr. Marin and I have done and Dr. Lever and I have done discussing drug therapy. Um, I would also encourage you to go to the website. We've created a directory of all of the uh, Big Hearted Warrior Tour meetings and where you can time tag them. So you can just get right to the topics that you want and you don't have to scroll through. Um, thank you, Sabrina, for creating that. One of our staff members did that. Um, and I think that just about 
Sums it up for today. I want to take a moment out to thank the sponsors of Tales from the Heart while we'll put some ad space in there. I just want to give some shouts out to um, Bristol Myers Squibb, formerly Myocardia, and Cytokinetics and Invitae uh, for their continued support of this podcast and our programming. And we have some new partners coming on board soon that uh, help make things like this possible. In addition, I want to acknowledge what we sent out in the newsletter today. Um, the American Heart Association, the American College of Cardiology, the Heart Failure Society, Women Heart, and a number of other organizations have now formally partnered with the HCMA to ensure that we're using all of our resources in a collective way to get HCM messaging out to providers, to patients, and to fortify our HCMA recognized center of excellence programming concept and make it bigger and better and make it more probable that patients with HCM will get better care consistent with guideline-driven therapies. So it's it's been a really exciting couple of months here, um, and we've got a lot coming up this fall. I do want to take just a moment out um, to mention something else, and that is mental health services. I think it's really important that we all take a moment to truly evaluate if we're, you know, whether we're a physician a patient, a family, just somebody scrolling through Facebook who found this, take a moment to do a mental health check for yourself and those around you. These have been some very difficult times and there have been some really sad things happening and some of them have touched our office directly. Uh, we lost a, um, a spouse of, a, of, a, of an HCMA staff member. And I wish I could say I fully understood everything, but I don't. Um, our thoughts are with her and her family during this very difficult time, but mental health challenges are real and we all need to start talking more freely about these things to avoid catastrophes and to try to help those who are in pain. So I would encourage you all to make use of mental health services and feel free to talk about how all of this stuff makes you feel. It's tough, whether you're a physician, you're in industry, you're trying to bring a drug to market, your patient's struggling. We're all in this together, so we're here to support each other. Can I just make one? Can I just make one last comment too? And sure. I think super important. Obviously, what you just said, and um, you know, thanks for bringing that up. It's so important to to hear that. Um, I'll say that too for those just in generally interested or are being challenged in in a, in a number of ways because of the HCM diagnosis. Uh, that I will make a pitch for a um, memoir that has been just published uh, that I think people will find um, helpful uh, and, and interesting and helpful um, by a patient of mine, Mike Papali, um, who survived cardiac arrest due to hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and has really had an incredible journey related to the disease and has written a memoir uh, about his experiences um, battling HCM. Um, and I think it's really worth uh, a read and it's available. He just wrote it. It's out now uh, for pre-order uh, on Amazon, Apple Books, Barnes and Noble, Google Play, et cetera. Um, it's called A Big Heart, A Big Heart, a memoir by Mike Papali. Well, I'll have to get Mike back on the podcast. We talked to him a while back, but that was through the old format. So we'll have to have him back on to talk about the book and let everybody have access to it. Um, yeah. Hopefully we can find some mechanism to make that available through HCMA as well. 
Um, so thanks for reminding me of that. Um, we all have challenges. We all have support systems. And I remind you all that we have discussion groups that are meeting several times a month and you can sign up for them and get educated, find some new friends, find some support. I think we're headed for a really tough winter, guys. I think we're going to be locked in a bit again and a bit isolated. So I'm happy to say that the HCMA programming is going to be all virtual and you'll be able to come on in and find some new friends and have some discussions and maybe let some steam off and, and feel a little bit better about things. Yeah. So Marty, thanks so much for joining us today. We've hit the top of the hour and we both have other meetings to get to. <laughs> Thank you all for joining Tales from the Heart and we'll see you next time. Right. Thank you for listening to Tales from the Heart. For more information on HCM, we encourage you to visit our website at 4hcm.org. Join us online for the conversation on our Facebook page or in our private group. Facebook page can be found at Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association. And our Instagram handle is at 4HCM Warriors. That's the number 4HCM Warriors. Follow us on Twitter at 4HCM.org. For those members of the LinkedIn community, you may want to follow the conversation on the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association group. Join us today. To contact the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association, you can call 973-983-7429. You can email us at support at 4hcm.org or visit us online at our website 4hcm.org and send us an email from there. The Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association is located in New Jersey and operates on East Coast time. We would like to thank our sponsors, Myocardia, Invitae, Boston Scientific, and Cytokinetics for their support of this program. The HCMA is partnering with Myocardia, 23andMe, and others to help learn more about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Learn more about these initiatives at 4HCM.org. Invitae, a genetic testing company and a sponsor of Tales from the Heart, is proud to provide free genetic testing to families with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Please learn more at 4HCM.org. Hey, we know life with HCM can be challenging, and support is critical. That's why the HCMA has created an online support group system to help you and your loved ones live better with HCM. Join us. The HCMA is seeking volunteers on a number of different projects, including our online support group system, our peer-to-peer big-hearted friend system, and our legislative subcommittee. Please visit 4HCM.org to learn more today.